835, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. My producer, Hondo, is behind glass, which is good because there is a danger that my head is going to explode as we start off today's program. We start off today's show like we start off every show, three big things. Big thing number one, there's actually a one and a one A. One is, how did this woman get access to classified information? Now, there's no question that there have been a number of leaks coming out of the federal government um, since Donald Trump took over as president. Some of these leaks involve information that is embarrassing to the Trump administration but not classified. Other information involves classified information. People with access to government national security documents who decide to make the decision for whatever purpose to give this information to the media. It is a crime and it should be a crime. And I don't know about you, but I... I don't want everybody that happens to get a job that gives them access to classified information making national security decisions. Now, the information in question was leaked to an Internet publication called The Intercept on May 5th. And it's apparently, again, classified government documents involving an investigation into Russian hacking. And the documents suggest that apparently Russians were able to hack into some some voting you know data voting information voting machines okay that that's the story there, there's no evidence right now that they were able to alter anything but but that that's the story it's being investigated okay russian government hacking into you know like uh, voting machines all right so that that's the story it's published in this internet thing called the intercept it's now they have figured out who allegedly, and I'll put the word in allegedly, but I've read the criminal complaint, so you don't have to. They've traced who did it. It's a 25-year-old woman. Her name is Reality, this is her name, Reality Lee Winner. Reality Lee Winner. Um, she's 25 years old. She somehow got a job working um, for a defense contractor in Augusta, Georgia, and somehow got a security clearance. She'd only been working for this defense contractor since early February. The leak comes May 5th. So, I mean, she was on the job less than 90 days. You read about this woman's background, and it, it's just a horror story. She, um, a political activist... She, let's see, I have to be careful with this because she's very active on the Internet. Um, she referred to President Trump as a piece of blank because of his position on the Dakota Access Pipeline. Um, she has various Facebook posts um, indicating that um, she's worried about climate change. She's upset with the state of Georgia, that they're not doing enough, critical of Trump. Use the hashtag NeverMyPresident and resist in a Facebook post um, regarding this. I'm looking at one. Um, this is, uh, again, after Trump made the decision on the Dakota pipeline. You've got to be 
blanking me right now. No one has called. The White House shut down their phone lines. There have been protests for months as both the drilling site and outside the White House. I'm losing my mind. If you voted for this piece of blank, explain this. He's lying. He's blatantly lying. And the second largest supply of fresh water in the country is now at risk. Um, never my president. Hashtag never my president. Hashtag resist. Now, it goes on and on and on about uh, the woman's outspoken I don't know, political activism. Now, I don't think necessarily being a hardcore political activist should disqualify you automatically for, you know, a job as where you're dealing with sensitive information. But under these circumstances, who who in their right mind, who in their right mind would give this woman a security clearance, at least without some extreme vetting. She is a U.S. Air Force veteran, I guess. Um, you know, big fan of Anderson Cooper, etc., etc., etc. CNN. But clearly, she's a, a Trump hater. She's one of these um, like unhinged kind of Trump haters. She gets this job with this defense contractor in February, and 90 days later, she's making the decision to leak this classified information. All right, that's story number one. How in the world did this woman get access? security clearance in the first place right story number one b though is what happens now she has been arrested she has been in well she's been charged in a criminal complaint she will i guess be indicted the charge against her and like i said i've got the criminal complaint in my hand right now charges um, her with violating the united states code for gathering transmitting or losing defense information it is a crime punishable by up to 10 years in prison to, you know, take classified information and disseminate it in the fashion that she did. So now she is sitting in the Huskow. Um, There is already a movement which is starting, which is like free, um, free reality winner. Oh, this is terrible. You have this woman. She's 25 years old. She just saw outrage. She was outraged. That's what's going on. She made the decision to disseminate this information. She's a 25-year-old gal. How in the world can we be prosecuting her and putting her in prison? 414-799-1620. That is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Again, an overriding issue is... How did she get this job in the first place? And are we giving away security clearances? Um, I don't know, like we give away Cracker Jack prizes. That's question number one. But question number two now is, what happens to her? Let us assume that the information in the criminal complaint is correct, that she did, in fact, disseminate this uh, classified information. She made the decision, I think the public needs to see this, so I'm going to, I've got access to it, so I'm going to send it on. Do you send her to prison? Does that make her a martyr? Um, or do you need to punish her and send a message? 414-799-1620. That is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I'll, I'll tell you quite simply. I hope they prosecute this woman to the fullest extent of the law, and I hope she goes to prison for several years. I don't want 25-year-old political activists who somehow get security clearances making decisions as to what classified information they share and what classified information they don't share. The rules are simple. 
It's not your decision. And I don't care if you love Donald Trump. I don't care if you hate Donald Trump. I don't care if you hate Barack Obama. You know, if you are working for the government, you have an obligation to protect that information, even if you should have never gotten access to the information in the first place. I say send her to prison and send her to prison for a good long time. It's 847, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. And by the way, don't get me wrong. I mean, I... I am as troubled as anybody over the, this report that apparently, you know, they've developed information indicating that, you know, the Russian government was trying to hack into computers of a U.S. company to obtain information on elections-related software and hardware solutions. Okay, that, that, that's a big deal. Okay, that, I'm not downplaying that. But the decision of this 25-year-old woman who worked for this defense contractor for less than three months, who somehow got a security clearance, the decision that she makes to act, access this information and to disseminate it, right? That's what I think is fundamentally wrong. How did she get a security clearance in the first place? You look at the trail that this woman has left on social media, and you can tell that she's certainly a Trump hater um, with radical political opinions. That doesn't necessarily disqualify you from a security clearance, but I think it should raise some red flags. So how did she get this in the first place? But more importantly, now that she's done it, what happens to her? On our text line, somebody texts, well, if you send her to prison, she's going to be a felon for the rest of her life. To which my response would be, yeah, <laughs> yeah, oh, okay. Um, another text, I think the problem is defense contracts are handed out too easily. Clearly, unqualified people are in charge, at least of the security process. Dave, downtown. Dave, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Good morning. <laughs> Charlie Flex used to say, suck it up, buttercup. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you, you did what you did. Now you bear the consequences. And, yeah, when you read that text, I was like, and? <laughs> right. Yeah, she'll, she'll be a felon forever. Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, and and here's, here's the thing. If I were Donald Trump, going back to Ronald Reagan, going back, to, I'd fire everybody. Because nobody who works here is taking this job seriously, right. protecting United States security. Just yeah. like Reagan went and fired everybody who was in air traffic control. Right. Honestly, these people all need to be fired. And, and here's the thing. Donald Trump, okay, there is maybe possibly information that says they were trying to collude to uh, influence the election, do whatever, get information that does not connect Donald Trump to the Russians in any way, shape, yeah. or form. Yeah, and, and again, and I and, the, no, go ahead. I mean, well, I guess, I mean, thanks. I mean, look, here's here's the thing. I, I mean, I, I the, the problem, and I've got some people saying, well, you know, the, the fact that she's a political activist shouldn't qualify her from not disqualify her from getting a security clearance. Well, maybe yes, maybe no. It, it depends how radical she is in this particular case. You know, I mean, the, the woman only worked at this place for three months. And my guess is this was probably one of the first times she got access to classified documents, and she immediately went public to, from it. Now, I think if you are clearly a, a radical, and it's very clear about that, at least that makes some extra vetting, because here it is very apparent, and I think it was predictable, that this woman's political beliefs and her rabid hatred of Donald Trump, etc., certainly rendered her... I don't know, somebody who was unreliable or whose priorities were all out of whack. And, and yeah, like you say, suck it up, buttercup. Don't do the crime if you can't do the time. Now, some people are going to view this woman as a martyr. I'm sorry. I just don't see it that way, you know, at at all. 
And, um, you know, it's, well, I have another text here. I agree that I believe it's not the individual's decision to decide what information should or should not be leaked out. I hope they prosecute her to the fullest. Yeah, that's, you know, that's, that's the thing. You can't make these decisions on your own. I don't want to trust a 25-year-old woman who's got an agenda. I don't want to trust her as being the one that decides what information should be given to the media, what information should not be given to the media. Let's talk to Lee in Stevens Point. Lee, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, listening to your prior text message that you read, I was in agreement that she would go. She would have a felony on her record, but I was taking it as... I would like to see her get a felony on her record because maybe what they were saying is once she gets a felony on her record, she can't get top top secret security clearance, which is what you want. She would never be allowed to get that kind of clearance again because absolutely uh, she could have given away a lot more secrets and she should be made an example of. And maybe that will teach the other individuals that we haven't found yet that you can't be doing this. Right, that that there are consequences. Yeah, I, I mean... Felony conviction or not, I would hope now that she's this is surfaced that she did this, that that would prevent her in the future from ever, you know, getting top security clearance. But again, I have questions about how she got this one in the first place, because you, you read the breadcrumbs. I mean, the trail she has left all over the Internet, and it demonstrates that she's clearly a hardcore Trump hater, political activist. And I think that would have raised at least some red flags as to, gee, you know, um, do we really want to trust you with top secret uh, information? The background just wasn't done that uh, right. that well that day. Yeah. I don't believe. No, I think, I, and that thanks for and, and that's and I guess that's the the scary thing. And look, I I understand that that there are, are people who don't like the president, and there are people who find his style to be off putting and don't agree with the substance of things. I I understand that, but you know, part of just because you're you know. Um, just because you're paranoid doesn't mean people are out to get you. And I think you're seeing this. There's people all buried all over the, the government, or in this case, I mean, she was at work for a defense contractor, who, who don't like the president, don't like the agenda, and are willing to use access they have to information to leak stuff to the media in an effort to try to, uh, again, discredit the president or, or whatever their motivations are. You cannot, I don't care who the president is, you cannot make that decision yourself. And if you do, um, you know, you need to have consequences. I, I'm getting a number of texts from people suggesting she should be charged with treason. Well, you know, treason, it's very difficult to prove treason. Treason requires that you, not that you just leak classified information, it it requires that you do it with the intent to, you know, essentially give aid and comfort. I'm oversimplifying it. Aid and comfort to the enemy. I, I don't think that there's treason here, at least based on what I'm seeing. It, it's just, it's, it's really clear. It's a 10-year felony. You have access to classified information. You leak it. You are guilty, period. Case closed. And um, as far as reality, Lee Winner, she is not a martyr. She is a criminal and needs to be treated as such. It's 907. This is Jeff Wagner. So, Jane, I, you know, I showed you yesterday. Tracy Johnson gave me one of these fidget spinners. And, I, I mean, there's a big story in the front page of the, the paper today about how the, these are becoming crazes with adults as well. 
I'm not sure I get it. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's, I, mean I, I just, you know, I mean, I've, I've, I've got it, and I'm spinning it, and yes, it, it goes around and around. I'm not, just, I'm not just, doing anything for you? No, I, I think I'm going back to my stress ball or my, like, I mean. See, I don't think you're anxious enough. Yeah, is that, I, I think yeah. you need to be more anxious. I, I need to develop some bad habits or something and have to really. Develop an anxiety disorder. I, 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 yeah, well, thanks. I will say this. Um, I can imagine, I, from, from the perspective of teachers, can you imagine like 20 or 25 kids sitting in a classroom all spinning these no. stupid things? I mean, no. what a distraction. Absolutely. I mean, for it, everyone. Right. Yeah, exactly. Now, I understand maybe if you've got a kid with, you know, ADHD or something like that and it helps them focus, but an entire classroom of people spinning this, and I understand it's the radio, but I'm spinning. I can just imagine a teacher looking at 25 people who are all doing this silly thing. And you can't tell me that some of those don't unintentionally get launched across the room every once in a while. Yes, yes, exactly. So I've been trying to get it. See, I, I am typically, I am not an early adopter. I, I come in late on this game, but since, uh, again, Tracy gave me the fidget spinner, I've been trying to figure out if, if this is something that's really going to take off and whether adults are going to be sitting in their workplaces and doing this. And I, I, don't, I don't exactly think so. I don't see that happening. <laughs> no, me neither. All right. Just saying. All right, and especially these things, I mean, mine... The you know you can get them for a couple bucks, but most of them are like ten. My guess is because Tracy's a high end gal. My guess is this is probably close to twenty dollars or something. And I'm thinking, huh, really? It's kind of like the guy that made the pet rocks, I guess. Big thing number two. I headline this with the category of there is a reason why God made prisons. Right? There's a number of accounts of this, but but Fox Six actually has what I think might be the best one. Um, Sunday. Um, there was um, havoc out at, at Brookfield Square. Now, keep in mind, you know, we, we've had the terrorist activities overseas, and when it comes to, I don't know, threats at public places, everybody, especially authorities, are on their last nerve. All right, so here's the headline of the Fox, Next story, Fox 6 story. Being stupid, upset with ex-girlfriend, man accused of making threats to Brookfield Square. Now, let me just say this in the beginning. Um, it is, I think it's, I appreciate the value of the cliche that says you don't judge a book by its cover, but you look at the picture of this guy, and he looks exactly like that guy that if you were trying to picture in your mind's eye, gee, who would be making threats at Brookfield Square? It's this guy. I mean, it's just this guy. All right, Brookfield Police announced on Monday, June 5th, that they have a 29-year-old man in custody in connection with a threat made to Brookfield Square property on Sunday. Everett Hembrook of Milwaukee faces one count of terrorist threats. According to the criminal complaint, about 1.30 on Sunday, officers were dispatched to Brookfield Square Mall for a threats complaint. They made contact with the complainant who said Hembrook, a friend of his on Facebook, had posted threats to shoot up Brookfield Square Mall and kill himself. The man was able to provide police with a screenshot of the threat. The post stated that Hembrook was a Brook, was at Brookfield Square Mall and stated, got my semi-automatic, going to blank up some blank, kill some folks, then me. Don't blanking care. Okay, I understand why this would cause a number of people to be concerned. Brookfield and New Berlin police remained in position at the mall until it closed at 6 p.m. The complaint says numerous businesses closed early due to threats. Additionally, the complaint notes that some customers, when advised there had been a threat to the mall, left immediately. 
gee, yeah, no kidding. The word gets out that there's somebody who says he's got an automatic, semi-automatic weapon. He's at the gun at the mall, and they're going to kill a whole bunch of people. Um, I can understand why. Maybe if you're there with the kids, you decide that you want to leave. The complaint further notes that citizens were reporting on social media about 100 police officers and four active shooters at the mall. Well, that's kind of the hysteria. After Hembrook was taken into custody, he provided a statement to police. According to the complaint, he claimed the last time he was on Facebook was May 23rd, and he said his account had been hacked. Hmm. He told investigators that perhaps his ex-girlfriend or her current boyfriend hacked his Facebook account because they wanted him back to jail. Now, of course, the operative phrase there is back to jail, you know, which which means you were there in the first place because you can't go back to jail until, unless you've been in jail. When shown a copy of his Facebook post, the complaint states he initially denied making the threats. Huh. A short time later, he admitted he was the one that posted the threats to Facebook, saying he was just being stupid. Huh. Well, this would be what we used to call in the U.S. Attorney's Office felony dumb. The complaint indicates Hembrook told investigators he was upset that his ex-girlfriend still has a restraining order against me. Okay, um, just, just off the top of my head... It would seem to me that if the guy is going to do this, a restraining order is probably the least of the things that the girlfriend should have. But he's upset. I'm, I'm going to go to Brookfield Square, and I'm going to kill a whole bunch of people. I'm mad because she's got a restraining order against me. Um, when asked where he got the idea to make the threats, he allegedly said from all the stuff going on overseas, he said he chose the Brookfield Square Mall because that's where he and his ex-girlfriend used to meet up when he lived in Waukesha, and the mall brought him a lot of anger because he had a lot of memories with his ex-girlfriend there. Okay. According to the complaint, Hembrook said he doesn't have access to a firearm, but if he did, I would just kill her and then myself. Bond was set in the amount of $10,000. Big story number two. This is why God made prisons. <laughs> it's just it's why God made prisons, because... Ah, um, incredible disruption. And I, I guess the guy wasn't actually there with a gun, but it doesn't matter. The disruption to the businesses, the fact that you probably did have an enormous number of police resources used, all because you have some clown who's, you know, upset with his girlfriend. Well, if I were the judge and he was convicted of this, um, he would have... He'd have a few years to think about um, what I describe, again, as felony stupid. So if you're wondering what was going on at Brookfield Square on Sunday, it was Everett Hembrook apparently threatening to kill a number of people at Brookfield Square. That's why God made prisons. Big story number three. All right, at least one of the London terrorists was on the authorities' radar screen, and they did nothing. Is it fair to criticize them? Stick around. It's 915 Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. It's 918 Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. It's reminiscent of a scene from a sci-fi movie. Why are scientists and engineers from the Defense Department to Silicon Valley working to make human brains more programmable and debuggable? Hmm. Catch the story during Scafidi and Billstead, 12.35 today. Steve and Eric do a great job. Just check it out. All right. Big story number three. And this this is a difficult one. And I, I am, I'm curious as how you react to it. All right. 
everybody is now probably aware of you know what happened in London the, the other day. Uh, third terrorist attack in just a couple months. In this particular attack, what you had is three radical Islamic terrorists rented a van, drove the van into a crowd of people, got out of the van, and then started, I mean, butchering people. You know, and, and it was, and, and think. The, the best way I could describe where they did this, think Water Street in Milwaukee on a busy Saturday night when it's warm. You know, lots of people around, lots of people on the sidewalks, lots of people milling around. You know, think, you know, Rush Street in Chicago on a busy Saturday night. They went to a, a tourist area where you had lots of tourists, lots of locals, lots of people around. You know, they killed a bunch of people and, and ended up all three being killed themselves. Uh, you you got to give credit to authorities. See, in London, a lot of the cops don't carry guns. Um, but yet they, they were able to, as horrible as this was, it would have been worse. I mean, was there not the complete and quick police presence? Because, you know, these people were intent on trying to kill as many people as they possibly could. All right. Now, London authority, actually Brit- British authorities have been <clears throat> very aggressive as I believe U.S. authorities have been over the years in trying to identify the the radical Islamic element and try to thwart plots. I, I don't think I, I don't for the life of me, for example, believe that terrorists haven't trying been trying to organize hundreds and hundreds of attacks in the United States since September eleventh, two thousand one. I, I think um, authorities have done a pretty good job of identifying some of the plotters and thwarting them. You know, but it, it's always a challenge. In London, for example, they they say that in the last two years they've they've thwarted over thirteen you know prospective terrorist attacks, but they are unfortunately not perfect. So there's three guys involved in this. They have not identified the the third person that's involved, but the first person that involved. 27-year-old guy named Karoom Shazad Butt. Um, so he's he's the one that has been, according to officials, he has been known to British authorities, including the Britain's British Domestic Intelligence Agency, for quite a while. Last year, one of the British TV stations did a documentary titled The Jihadis Next Door, which focused on radical jihadists who were living in Great Britain. And um, this guy, this this butt character, is one of the group of men unveiling an Islamic State flag in London's Regent Park. So, I mean, he was on the radar screen of authorities. And authorities, obviously... I don't know if it's fair to say did nothing, but they, they didn't get him off the streets, and now you have all these people that are dead. Now, London's getting ready, Britain's getting ready to have an election um, coming up in just a couple of days. This has become, the, the idea of dealing with terrorism has become the, this huge issue, and a lot of people are saying, hey, the, the government isn't doing enough to keep ourselves safe. You know, this guy was known to authorities. He was in a video about the ter- essentially the terrorists next door, and he was still out on the street. Now, to me, this raises all sorts of interesting questions, including questions that are relevant in the United States. We typically do not punish people for thoughts. We punish people for actions. 
Now, sometimes those actions and the thoughts uh, combine. You've got a conspiracy. If there's a conspiracy to commit a crime and you get together and then there's an overt act in furtherance of the crime. But in general, simply preaching jihad, all right, wouldn't necessarily be enough to get you locked up. But here we're in a situation where the guy was known to authorities and they didn't do apparently anything to get him off the street. Our number is 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. This is a complex and it is a difficult issue. In recognizing what the world is like now, do we need to do more to get people, to lock people up, to get people off the street before they actually act? If they are expressing thoughts indicating that they might act in the future. Get what I'm asking? 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I mean, a lot of people are screaming, why was this guy out on the street? You know, you, you knew he was a jihadist. You know, you knew what he thought. But at the same time, he hadn't acted out yet. Could they have locked him up? Should they have locked him up? Should we lock up the extremists among us? I don't think you're going to like the answer that I'm going to give you, but we're going to discuss it. 414-799-1620. That is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. What do you think? We discuss next. It's 924. Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. It's 926, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. All right, it, it turns out that one of the people responsible for the terrorist attack in Great Britain the other day was known to authorities. He even appeared in a documentary they did a year ago called The Jihadis Next Door or something like that. So now a lot of people are saying, how could this guy be out on the street? It, it, it's a fair question. and But I mean, my problem with this is, you know, in a free society, you, you don't criminalize thought you criminalize actions and candidly i just don't know what authorities could have done let's start with uh let's see john in south milwaukee john you're at 620 btmj good morning hey, hey good morning jeff um you took the words right out of my mouth i mean what are they going to start doing then giving people speeding tickets because they thought about speeding yeah i mean you can't do anything until somebody acts now should this guy have been more um should um, uh, a law enforcement agency be more closely monitoring them yeah you could make a case for that but arresting them and putting them in prison just because he thought about that eh, yeah doesn't and work for me I, I mean i don't know john there, there was a tom cruise movie a few years back called minority, yep, minority report. report yeah yep. <laughs> you know which was based and the premise was they had these computers that predicted when people would that, that predicted that people were going to do crimes and then they'd go out and arrest exactly. them and yeah i mean th- mm-hmm. it, look and i th- thanks Scott. i mean i appreciate that this is an unsatisfying response and, you know, you, you look at this guy and you look at the interviews and everybody – I don't think there's anybody surprised that he was one of the people that was responsible for this. But how far, you know, do you – how far do you go? I, I do agree that, you know, it, it merits, you know, extra scrutiny when you have somebody – I mean, candidly, you know, if I was British intelligence and I saw people appearing in a documentary called The Jihadis Next Door, I would have intense surveillance on them. Maybe they did. Maybe they didn't. But y- – and it's frustrating. I get it. I get how frustrating this is, but I just don't know how you lock people up. Scott in Sheboygan. Scott, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Hey, good morning, Jeff. See, um, as a former investigator, I retired after 29 years uh, in a government agency, and we would surveil people daily. So mm-hmm. you kind of hit the nail on the head, and at least your listeners should know that. We dedicate uh, over 150 agents 
on surveillance. Right. But as a prosecutor, I'd come to you and say, Jeff, we have to be able to lock them up. Nothing yet. Well, we continue to do surveillance. But in the meantime, you have other investigations. The educated reason. Yep. Yeah, I'm sorry. Your cell phone is cutting in and out, Scott. But, yeah, that, that's it. Look, I, I had a, a very close friend of mine. This is years and years ago um, who – he, he started out working. He worked for the FBI. Worked for the FBI in in Milwaukee. We did bank robbery cases together. Prosecuted bank robbery cases, as opposed to robbing banks together. We prosecuted bank robbery cases together. He got transferred to New York. His job, day after day, he followed Russians around. I mean, literally, he, he followed people that they suspected would be Russian spies. That was his entire job for years and years. He hated it. But you know, he, he, that's that's what they did. It was surveillance. Now, if you saw evidence indicating that something was going to happen you know then they would consider acting but i think you know it, this is becoming a big political issue in in great britain because again there, there's elections coming up in two days and the conservative prime minister is getting all sorts of static about you know the government should have done more to to try to prevent these type of things the problem is there are limits as to what can be done in a free society. Now, clearly, again, if you have somebody who's appearing in these documentaries or, you know, somebody who's posting this type of stuff on Facebook or, you know, in the dark regions of the, the Internet, this is the see something, say something, where people need to alert the authorities and let them try to do whatever they're going to do in an effort to determine, is it just some kook or is it somebody that's really in the process of acting out? But is unfortunately, and it's not a satisfactory response, as part of a free society, I think it's just it's a risk that we have to live with. And I don't like saying that any more than you like hearing it, but I think it is the reality. It's 935, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Our WTMJ Classic Free Ride is out of our garage. It's ready to head into yours. You can register online to win the 1968 Valenti Oldsmobile 442 convertible by heading to WTMJ.com. It is sponsored by Prescient Financial Solutions with Northwestern Mutual. And don't forget to text the word RIDE to 414-799-1620. You can check out a photo gallery of what could very well be your next car. All right. Uh, Donald Trump just rewrites the rule book on, on a daily basis for, for better or for worse. Historically, politicians, especially presidents, have, with a couple exceptions, um, have, have worked very hard on image building and shaping messages. You know, when, when the president speaks... It is typically a carefully crafted speech designed to convey a particular message or or a point. You know, when the president has news conferences, you know, typically, again, they're, I don't want to say staged, but they're arranged and there's an idea and you kind of know what the questions are coming. It's, it's, it's not scripted, but presidents try to stay on message to advance whatever their agenda is. Donald Trump rewrites the rule book. 
you know, now you have with with the advent of social media and and Twitter and you know Facebook and all these things, you don't need to go through the traditional media filter. You don't need to depend on the major news networks to communicate with people. You don't need to depend on the New York Times and the Washington Post to communicate with people. You can go over, under, around the media and communicate directly with people, again, via Twitter and things like that. So the successful politicians nowadays are are ones who I think are are very good at adapting to social media and realizing that they don't need to communicate with the the voters, their supporters, the general public through the the traditional sources. They can contribute and they they can converse directly. And, and that's, I think, a good thing as a general rule. President Trump, though, is perhaps, well, he's rewriting, like I say, the rule book with regard to the, the use of Twitter. And that is that instead of, instead of scripted, let's stay on message types of, of things, um, he, I mean, I really do get the impression sometimes that he just gets a, you know, bug in a certain part of his anatomy and decides that he's going to vent. And so it doesn't matter whether it's three or four o'clock in the morning or whatever, you know, he'll grab he'll grab his cell phone and he will send out the, these different things. Um, in many cases, in many cases, it's the tweets that end up getting him in trouble. And I say in trouble because that they create these different controversies. I mean, the, the latest example is, you know, going after the, the mayor of London after the, the, the whole terrorist attack. And there's, you know, arguments that he take that he take what the mayor of London said out of context. And, you know, was it a cheap shot? But, you know, if you look back over the course of the last you know, several months of the Trump presidency, many of the controversial things haven't necessarily come from speeches he's given or statements he's made. It's rather been the, the tweets, the, gee, I was wiretapped by Barack Obama. Okay, that surprises everybody, and that becomes the, the message. You know, it, it's the use of, of Twitter, which on one hand allows him to communicate directly with his supporters and others as well, but at the same time, it, it appears to be this kind of like scattergun effect, which and I think in many cases, ends up taking him off message. Now, I bring this up because as somebody who wants to see the president succeed, I, I do. I want to see every president succeed. Many of my objections to some of the things that President Trump has been doing have been based more on style than on substance. And it's important to try, in my opinion, to separate the style from the substance. But I think the use of Twitter candidly is dragging him down, at least the way he has been using it. So I know there's a lot of people who would just, you know, like to have either like to take his cell phone away or would like to, you know, have some sort of, you know, vetting process so that, you know, you're you're not going to be sending these things out, which end up taking you off message. All right. So that's been one of the discussions. Well, uh, earlier today, the, the president um, again, the way the story is being written, serve notice that he is going to keep tweeting away, whether it's talking about his travel ban. That created an issue because the lawyers for the Department of Justice are not are arguing in the Supreme Court, hey, this isn't a travel ban. Trump is saying, yes, it's a travel ban, which is making them tougher. So anyhow, he sends out, um, this is one that goes out 6.58 a.m. this morning, Eastern Time. 
the fake mainstream media is working so hard trying to get me not to use social media. They hate that I can get the honest and unfiltered message out. Um, Then 15 minutes later, sorry, folks, but if I would have relied on the fake news of CNN, NBC, ABC, CBS, Wash Post, or New York Times, I would have had zero chance of winning the White House. So, in other words, he's saying, um, for everybody who says that I should stop using the Twitter, it it ain't going to happen. All right, 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Again, this might be one that you're going to disagree with me on, but I don't know that I would say that President Trump needs to stop using, you know, the, the social media, but I do think he needs to be much more disciplined in using it because I think in many respects he has been his own worst enemy by some of the things that he has put out on Twitter which end up creating controversies and dragging his administration unnecessarily off message for days at a time. At the same time, I I appreciate it is his way to circumvent the mainstream media. He doesn't need to go through the filter of the New York Times. He doesn't need to go through the filter of, you know, NBC News. And to an extent, that's a good thing. Would you like to see him be more disciplined in the way he uses Twitter? Has his use of Twitter hurt him, you know, in the months that he has been president? I, I think the answer to both is yes and yes. But let's discuss. 414-799-1620 is the number. It's 942. We talk about it next. If you're on the line, please hold on. This is Jeff Wagner. It's 946. Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. The man that many Democrats are looking to as the best option to challenge Congressman Paul Ryan, for a seat in 2018, is also being called a leader of the Trump resistance movement. Who is he? And is unseating the speaker even possible? Scafidi and Bilstad weigh in at 1.35 this afternoon. I think they're talking about the carpetbagger who's like from Ohio, who's going to move to Wisconsin with the idea that, you know, he's going to, I don't know, campaign against Ryan for the next 18 months. Um, okay, if this is... I don't think Paul Ryan is beatable, but you know, I think has he ever gotten less than like sixty or sixty-five percent of the vote? But um, if he is beatable, it's not going to be from some liberal activist from Ohio who decides to relocate to Wisconsin. Um, I, I just, I you know, maybe if you had some homegrown person with some political stature, but some lefty carpetbagger, I, I think. I mean, my advice would be, well, I mean, you can spend your time how you want, but um, 18 months, that's a long time to run a losing challenge because you will, in fact, lose. All right. Um, Donald Trump, President Trump, tweeting out this morning that he has no intention of stopping his use of social media. It is that use of social media that I believe has, again, gotten him into trouble not so much because of the substance, but again, because of the style. Because, it, it, quite candidly, it just, I don't see a strategy necessarily. I understand some people look at this and say, hey, no, no, he's, you know, he, he's like clever like a fox. What, what he does is, you know, this is the distraction. You know, he'll be getting beaten up on firing James Comey. Boy, did that story kind of go away. He'll be getting beaten up on that, so then he'll tweet something out, and then that becomes what the story is the next day. Well, you, you put all those things together. I don't, I just don't think it's that. I don't think there is 
that sort of sophisticated thinking that's going on, I think what happens is President Trump watches something on the news and gets angry and then decides to grab his phone and starts writing stuff. And that's that's not necessarily a good way to implement policy. In addition to that, perhaps this is the even bigger point, when you are the leader of the free world, you know, what you say matters. You know, your words are interpreted, your words are analyzed, it it matters a lot. And I, I think trying to deal with complex issues, whether it's, you know, how you deal with terrorism or what you do with health care or how you handle questions involving whether or not there was hacking by the Russians into our election process, I think the idea of trying to communicate with really, really significant issues in 140 characters is, I, I just, it's, I don't know if dangerous is the right word, but it's a, a very, it's very, very difficult to do. So, do I think that the president needs to get away from using social media? No. I mean, clearly it's a way to get your message out, and it's a way to get it through with the, without having it filtered by the mainstream media. I get all that, but 140 characters is not the way to conduct foreign policy. 140 characters is not the way to express your concerns about health care. Now, Kathy Isis Griffin holds up, you know, a, a severed head that appears to be you. Yeah, all right. If you want to use, you know, Twitter to go after her, that's fine. You know, that's I think she brings that on herself. But for matters of significant policy, I, I think it, it, if nothing else, I think you need to start vetting these things. And if I were advising the president, not that I think he listens to anybody, it would be, hey, at 3 o'clock in the morning or 4 o'clock at the morning, you know, if, if you're awake, you know, go work out or something, but just leave the cell phone behind. Just saying. There was an interesting story in the Journal Sentinel over the last um, uh, last couple of days. Okay, we have some breaking news here. Um, wow, another one of these terror stories, perhaps. Police have responded to a, an alert at Paris's Notre Dame Cathedral amid reports of gunshots and panic. So that's, again, that's the breaking news story. Police are responding to an alert at Paris's uh, Notre Dame Cathedral. If you've ever been to Paris, chances are you, you've been to that cathedral. Um, amid reports of gunshots and panic. This, of course, comes on the heels of three separate terrorist incidents in London over the last uh, several weeks. So we will continue to keep you updated on that uh, alert. Paris's Notre Dame Cathedral, gunshots and panic. Again, it's breaking news. Don't know what that means. The terrorist is it? Who knows? But we'll continue to keep you posted. But uh, Europe certainly seems to be having more than its share of these instances. Anyways, interesting story over the weekend in the Journal Sentinel talking about the, the Marinette County District Attorney who was stepping down. And he says, hey, I, I'm not really I, I didn't want to retire, but I've had enough. I'm 62 years old. I've been a prosecutor for 32 years. And the, the resources the legisl- we're, we're just overwhelmed. The caseloads are too great. Um, the, the legislature, you know, I, I don't have enough money to hire the prosecutors I need. We've got these backlogs. I'm working six and seven days a week. It's just brutal. I've tried my best, but, you know, enough is enough. Life is too short. You know, and that's the tone of the story. And there, there's no question in my mind, quite candidly, that prosecutors, I think, are are 
underpaid. You know, DAs make pretty decent money, but um, the the assistant district attorneys, there needs to be more of them, and there need they need to be paid better. I mean, it's amazing to me how comparatively little experienced district attorneys make. And I say comparatively compared to, you know, what they could make in the private sector. Now, private sector is not all its role, you know, is not all that um, some people would say it, it it's, you know, purports to be because, you know, you have billable hours and the pressure of developing clients and getting paid and all those things. But still, I mean, you have experienced prosecutors that are, you know, working for fifty and $60,000 a year, and, and that's not necessarily a lot of money, especially if there's not the option to, you know, in, increase as you spend more time there. So I, I think there's some very valid concerns, and it's not fair to victims, for example, to have your case kind of languish and things like that, and to have, you know, your case, if it's a lower priority case, get kicked to the bottom of the pile, and maybe it's not going to get charged in a timely sort of fashion. All right. In some cases, though, and I, and I appreciate, I think it is a legitimate concern, to the extent that the prosecutors do not do not get as much sympathy as they deserve in the legislature, you know, no one person to blame for that? John Chisholm. Because it is difficult, I think, given the fact that in the Milwaukee DA's office, you've had this John Doe, you had this John Doe investigation where Chisholm spent hundreds of thousands of dollars pursuing this kind of cockamamie theory in what I think most people decided was ultimately a political witch hunt to try to bring down Scott Walker or people around Scott Walker. You know, I think you look at this and you say, okay, if if John Chisholm has all this money to commit all these resources, you know, chasing windmills, tilting at windmills like this, you know, is, is there really such a, a crying need? Does this show that, I mean, are, are, do the district attorney's offices really need money? And the answer is yes, the district attorney's offices really need money. It's just that you have some bad district attorneys who don't have any sense at all of resource allocation. And candidly, the John Chisholm witch hunt in this John Doe investigation, I think that really set back the effort of other DAs to try to get more money. So when you complain about not having enough resources, uh, take it up with John Chisholm. It's 955 Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Hey, coming up in a couple minutes, I want to talk to you about the continuing controversy involving EpiPens. Stick around. It's 958 Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. This Friday, dozens of WW2 and Korean War veterans are headed to D.C. on a very special honor flight. And we're taking you on the ride as well. From sunrise to sunset, our very own John McCure will document their journey with live reports throughout the day here on WTMJ. It's our day of honor with Stars and Stripes Honor Flight. And it all begins Friday morning here on 620 WTMJ. Jane will have an update in just a couple minutes about the situation in Paris that we were talking about. Seems to be... um, a lone wolf situation, the reports are a guy attacked a police officer with a hammer, the police officer shot him. That's that's the report, but this doesn't appear to be a broad-based terror action. But again, everybody is on their last nerve as a result of what's been going on across the world, particularly what's been happening in Great Britain over the course of uh, the last couple weeks. Coming up in just a couple minutes, it was a huge story a while ago. Remember, everybody who needs EpiPens were outraged to find out how much they were paying for the EpiPens that actually only have about a dollar in medicine worth of medicine in them. The company said, we hear you, we hear you, we hear you. Well, 
You know how much you still pay for EpiPens? Stick around. I will tell you, and we will discuss. It's 959. Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. It's 1008. This is Jeff Wagner. I want to go back to late last summer. You will remember there was a controversy involving these EpiPens. EpiPens are the, the devices that eject, inject epinephrine, which is for people who have severe allergies or allergic reactions to like bee stings and things like that. Um, you know, you, you need this injected. The, the drug itself, the epinephrine, costs about a dollar, right? The, the EpiPen is the delivery system. It's the thing that, you know, regulates the dose of, of the drug. So that, that's the background. The EpiPen, um, different than the drug. The drug only costs about a dollar. Um, EpiPens are made by this company called Mylan. Let me, let me share with you a portion of a story. This goes back to August of last year. All right. So now we're, we're going on almost a year later, but this is from August of last year. Um, it's in Forbes magazine. Why did Mylan, that's the company that holds the, the rights to the EpiPens. Why did Mylan hike EpiPen prices 400%? Because they could. Um, da, 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 da. Mylan, pharmaceutical company, has a virtual monopoly on EpiPens after a voluntary recall felled their only competitor over possible dosage miscalibrations. It's not the drug being delivered that bring the bucks, though. Epinephrine's a cheap generic. Again, a dollar, typically for a dose. The cost trickery is in the delivery system, the Mylan EpiPen. The EpiPen's been around since 1977, but Mylan acquired the auto-injector, which precisely calibrates the dosage in 2007. The patent now pays about 400, the patient now pays about 400% more for this advantage to receive a dollar's worth of a life-saving drug. EpiPens were $57 when Mylan acquired it in 2007. Today, they can cost more than $500, despite the fact that it's the same same EpiPen. The EpiPens have not changed. What changed was, once this company acquired the rights to the EpiPen, they started jacking up the costs. This, this story from Forbes, and again, this is August of last year, continues. It's what the market will bear. So what's the problem, right? Only this. Somewhere right now, a cash-strapped parent on a budget lim- or a budget-limited patient with a severe allergy will skip acquiring an EpiPen, and someday they will need it in a life-threatening situation involving exposure to a trigger, and they won't have it, and they will die because they couldn't afford the delivery mechanism for $1 worth of a drug to keep them alive. Two turning points, a death, and one company at the crosswords, crossroads. According to NBC, this is last August, Mylan's profits from selling EpiPens, which they have aggressively, famously marketed with brilliant success, hit $1.2 billion in 2015. That year, Bloomberg reported that the epinephrine delivery system represented 40% of their operating profits. Bloomberg calls Mylan's marketing of the EpiPen a textbook case in savvy branding. The savvy comes at a steep and increasing individual cost. Even after insurance pays, the customer can be out $400 or more for a pack of two pens, a dollar value that can vary depending on how high the deductible is. And most customers need EpiPens for home and at school for their child. 
Guidelines, as a matter of fact, call for prescribing two doses in case the first one fails. And Mylan used this as an opportunity to cease selling single pens and begin selling only two packs. Um, let's see. Uh, it, so, you know, it, it kind of goes on and on. You're supposed to have, again, two EpiPens at all time, et cetera, et cetera. So um, you buy a two-pack, but that doesn't mean you have, you know, one in your car and one at school. It means in, in case there's a severe reaction and you might need that second injection, you're supposed to have two at school, you're supposed to have two at your car, two in your house, you know, whatever. So. This was, as you will recall, the controversy that went on in in the summer of, of last year. And there was all this outrage about, you know, the prices and how this is price gouging and this is profiteering and what a crummy company Mylan is. And you had all these people that were saying, okay, this is one of these situations where you want to understand why health car, co- car costs are out of whack. Um, this is it. All right. So here we are in June of 2017. Going on a year later, what's happened with the cost of Epi pens? Let me share with you a story that was. Um, um, there's a bigger story in the New York Times, but but here's one. Remember last year, around back-to-school time, when the public focused its ire on the drug company Mylan for charging hundreds of dollars for $1 worth of the drug epinephrine in each EpiPen brand auto-injector? While that generated plenty of bad publicity for Mylan, it turns out that Mylan doesn't actually care. How much doesn't it care? The New York Times spoke with Milan higher-ups who didn't want to be identified because they signed non-disclosure agreements, and they recounted a meeting over the EpiPen prices with the chairman, Robert Corey. When some executives brought up their concerns about the continuing price hikes for EpiPen in recent years, multiple sources told the New York Times that Corey displayed two middle fingers and told them that FDA regulators, outraged members of Congress, investors, and anyone else concerned about the pricing could go you-know-what themselves. Although he didn't say you-know-what. The executives say that the price of EpiPens was expected to go even higher before all the negative publicity. Um, the New York Times learning firsthand that Milan hadn't actually changed anything when he went to refill one of the right reporters writes about how he went to refill his son's EpiPen prescription. The pharmacy told him he was responsible for paying $609 for a two-pack of pens. Well, couldn't he just get a generic? Well, getting a generic version meant having the pharmacy contact the doctor's office for authorization, then paying about $370. Okay, 414-799-1620. One six twenty. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I remember all the outrage about this a, a year ago. The fact that you have a drug company who is charging hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of dollars to families for essentially a $1 dose of a life-saving drug um, in a delivery system that has been around since 1977, and they continue to raise the prices and apparently have no, no, no hesitation in continuing to do this, and the, the public has no choice. Okay, 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage, uh, that's the Acunet Mortgage talk and text line. I'm a free market guy, but at some point in time, it seems to me that 
you have abusive companies who are profiteering and who are taking unreasonable advantage over what has essentially been a monopoly that they've been given. Keep in mind, Mylan didn't even develop the EpiPen. EpiPen's been around since uh, 1977. They just bought the rights to this. 414-799-1620, that is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. All right, I'm a free market guy, but what this company is doing is wrong. And whether it's taking away patent protection or whether it's, I, I don't know, trying to you know release and relieve regulations to make it easier for alternatives to come out. This is a bad company, and something needs to be done. 414-799-1620 is the number. Um, if you go through this and you deal with this, I would be interested to know, I mean, have the prices come down? Are we missing something here? Is this a health hazard? If you've got a kid that has a severe allergy or if you are like, a couple dear friends of mine or people extremely close to me that you have these incredible allergic reactions. Um, can you afford to even have this simple life-saving thing? And just as a matter of principle, and I don't want to go Bernie Sanders on you, but should you be able to charge 600 dollars for essentially $1 worth of a drug, a dollar's worth of drug that's been on the market forever? Okay, Lon and Brown Deer texts. Jeff, I can personally vouch for the article you just read. I have chosen not to purchase an EpiPen for the last few years because they are just outrageous. 414-799-1620 is the number. If you are on the line, please hold on. If you deal with this on a daily basis, how are you handling it? And is the price, are, are you being ripped off by what is, is this, I don't know that this is the free market at work. Is this a ripoff and does something need to be done about it? We're back uh, to discuss next. If you're on the line, please hold on. It's 1018. This is Jeff Wagner. <laughs> It's 1020, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. If you were wondering whether negative public pressure and negative attention could get uh, what I believe is an irresponsible drug company to clean up its act, the answer is no. We're talking about Mylan. They're the ones that um, hold the patent for this EpiPen. It's a delivery system. This is what people take when you have severe allergies, like you have a reaction to a bee sting. If you don't get this epinephrine um, shot within minutes, in some cases you can die. Um, they charge six, seven, eight, nine hundred dollars for two pens. The drug itself only costs a dollar. The technology, this pen design, has been around since 1977. They charge it because they can. Let's talk to Amy in New Berlin. Amy, you're on 620 WTMJ. Hi, Jeff. Um, I am a person that is severely allergic to these things, mm-hmm. wasps, things, any of that nature, anything of that nature, and I have to have an EpiPen. I have two that I got years ago, back when they were only costing about $100 a piece. Um, if those expire, I'm SOL. I cannot afford $600. I, yep. I don't have $600 out of pocket. So I have to hope and pray that the two that I have don't expire. And if they do, and, mm-hmm. and I'm, like, paranoid, Every I, I enjoy being outside, but I'm constantly worried about, am I going to get stung by a bee? And not only do I have the EpiPen with me, but is it going to work? And right. then what am I going to do if I have to use it because I can't get another one? And I guess, 
I mean, see, I sometimes, Amy, I, I defend pharmaceutical companies because, you know, there, there's a lot of research and costs that go into developing new drugs, and that has to be paid yeah. for. But that's not – this is $1. I mean, what, what this is, it's a pen that's been around since 1977. It's not like it's new technology. It's just they have a patent on it, and they well, are gouging not, people. And it's not just EpiPens either. I have a friend that has COPD and is on Combavent. Combavent is a combination of two drugs that cost about a dollar fifty each. The drugs individually in a vial cost a dollar fifty from the pharmacy. Right. To get a Combavent inhaler, if you have to pay it out of pocket, is four hundred dollars. Right. Right. It's obscene. It's yeah. absolutely obscene. It is. Now, I mean, there, thanks. For, I mean, there is there is something that doctors. I mean, EpiPens are. I mean, it, it's it's kind of like the, it's what they've been doing. Now th- there are alternatives. They they work in slightly different ways, and and the doctors. I mean, the doctors need to prescribe them. I mean, apparently, I mean, you can, you know, you can go to your your doctor and you can ask for like a generic, and the generics, um, they, they cost a. Several hundred dollars, but they cost less than this myelin thing. They cost less than the EpiPens. But doctors aren't used to doing this. They're used to just prescribing the EpiPens. They assume that people, you know, have the insurance that will pay for them. Myelin markets to the doctors, and so they they continue to sell these things, and it ends up being these these vicious cycles. So, I mean, I guess if Myelin is going to be an irresponsible corporation, and I think it is in this regard, I mean, I don't mind people making a profit, but my God, they're gouging. I I mean, what you need to do is you need to go to the doctor and say, I don't want the EpiPen. You know, I want the alternative. Give me that prescription. Pharmacists, I think, need to steer people away from that as well. 414-799-1620. Ryan and Madison. Ryan, you're at 620 WTMJ. Morning, Jeff. Morning, Ryan. Um, my sister is allergic to many things, uh, tree nuts being one of them. She mm-hmm. was at a Christmas party last year, and one of the ingredients, one of the spreads was cashew butter, and she didn't realize it. Right. So she had some of that, and uh, she couldn't afford an EpiPen, but within 30 seconds, her throat starts opening right. up. Her husband had to uh, race her to the hospital, and the people at the hospital said she would have died in half an hour. Yep. Um, but it's one of those things that it is what it is. She can't afford it. Her insurance doesn't cover enough of it. Right. So. Right. And, and, and again, it, it's – okay, they're, they're, they've, they've raised the – when this particular company – you know, got the rights to EpiPens in 2007. They were charging $57. It's the same thing, you know, and now they're charging, you know, what, seven, eight, nine hundred dollars for two of them. It's, it is pure price gouging. And it's, you know, one of the reasons that people deservedly hate, you know, drug companies. And you can just, you can just tell the arrogance that these people have. She wrote a uh, very, Moving Facebook post. If you'd like, I can uh, send that over to you. Yeah, please. For yeah, send it. Yeah, email me. I'd, I'd love to see it. It's Jeff Wagner WTMJ dot com. Um, let's see. Our text line is just exploding. I hope that the high horse muckety muck or a family member of his never needs fast medical attention for a condition he has no control over. Maybe if the cost of the EpiPen was lower, more of them would be purchased and they could still make money. Yeah, I'm not against. Um, I'm not against making money. You know, don't. Don't get me wrong. I I appreciate that, but but what happens is this is a, a semi-monopoly situation, and you know nothing is going to change until you know the doctors start saying, okay, we're not going to do what we've always done. Um, and again, it, we're t- we're talking about uh, the drug itself is a dollar. It's epinephrine. It's been around. It's it's a the dollar. It's a dollar, 
and you know people are paying hundreds and hundreds of dollars for the, the thing that injects them. And again, it's pretty much a monopoly situation after one of the other companies that made these, you know, had various issues. And Mylan is ex- is exploiting that, and it's it's just wrong. Ron in Plymouth. Ron, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Hi. I, I checked with the local pharmacy uh, out of curiosity and found out that there is a shelf life anywhere from six months to a year approximately. Right. So that further complicates things if somebody has one in their right. bedroom or on a shelf. Um, yeah, you can't keep them forever. Money. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I, I, yeah no, it's, it, it's, it's, just, it's just a mess. And, and, thanks for, and again, it's, it, it, is, it is price gouging in the extreme. And, you know, I think a lot of people, you know, we complain about health care costs, rightly so. This is one of the types of things that, that generates that. I understand if you're talking about a new cancer drug, I get why that's going to be expensive. I understand that. But this is technology that exists. It's not even the drug. It's just the injector. It goes back to 1977. There is no way that people should have to pay several hundred dollars for this. Sherry in Greenfield. Sherry, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Good morning. How are you? I am. Oh, this irritates me. I have to admit. <laughs> oh yes, definitely, definitely. Um, I've come with a little bit of background here. I, I'm calling from Global Health, a local international prescription mail order service, but mainly just to inform your listeners that there are other options. Right. And so many times, if you go outside of your insurance, um, you can find those options online or here locally, like we are. Mm-hmm. Or you have to ask your doctor. Price. I mean, or right, or you have to ask the doc. Apparently, there are options that the doctors can prescribe, but they're they're just prescribing these EpiPens out of force of habit. Exactly, exactly. So you always need to ask for the other options, regardless of what medication you're at, you know you're yeah. working with. But definitely, you need to have that conversation with your physician. Right. No, exactly right. Because, again, and, and again, see, this is one of the problems with our, our insurance system, and I, I appreciate that. There isn't transparency. Okay, your, your insurance, okay, the insurance is going to cover that. Maybe you've got a low deductible or whatever, so you don't necessarily care. Well, okay, you're being ripped off. Um, you know, the insurance company is being ripped off by having to overpay. And then for people who have really high deductibles or no insurance, they, they can't they can't buy these things anyways. It's it's a mess. But I do this as an update. Please listen because I come this way but once. All that controversy. Remember, this was a big issue last summer. Um, it has not gone away. And the company executive, apparently, his reaction is to extend both hands and wave his middle finger at the general public. That's why some people hate corporate America. It's 1029. <laughs> It's 1031, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. I hate it when my free market instincts run run afoul of a run up against a company that is just being socially irresponsible. And that's this Mylan is an awful company. And it, they're just, they're an awful company. And anything that could be done to, I don't know, hurt them economically, like doctors writing prescriptions for the generics or whatever, should be. And that's one. That's one that, you know, I don't necessarily claim to be a socially conscious investor, but I tell you, if I was an investor, a stockholder, I might say, man, enough is enough.
It's 1036, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. So very glad to have you with us this Friday. Dozens of World War II and Korean War war veterans are headed to D.C. on a very special honor flight. And we are taking you on the ride as well from sunrise to sunset. Our very own John McCure will document their journey with live reports throughout the day here on WTMJ. It is our day of honor with the Stars and Stripe Honor Flight. And it all begins Friday morning here on 620 WTMJ. Um, just one final thought about the um, the conversation we were having with the um, you know ep- epipens. Um, I'm also getting a, a number of emails from people who are saying it, it's a similar sort of thing with insulin, you know, seven, eight, nine hundred dollars per shot and things like that. And again, I my my issue with this, I, I'm a free market guy. I, I do appreciate that, but you know where you have situations where th- there really isn't competition. Um, it's not new technology. It, it strikes me that what goes on is price gouging, just just pure and simple. And in this particular area, somebody who's concerned about, number one, people being able to afford a, a $1 dose of a drug that you have to pay four, five, six hundred dollars $600 for because essentially of the way it's packaged, I, I think – you know, doctors need to be mindful of that, and any doctor that's continuing to prescribe these EpiPens is out of his mind. I mean, it's really, you know, you you gotta force force some of these companies that are just doing nothing but profiteering from sick people. You, you gotta force them maybe to either be responsible or then try to put them out of business. All right, I want to revisit something that we have talked about before. Um, let me how, how can I back into this topic? My my niece. My niece, who is also my goddaughter, graduates from high school on Friday. Very much looking forward to it. Um, boy, you know, that it, it just it seems like just I know this is what older people say, but it, it seems like just yesterday that she was born, you know, and we're we're very, very proud of her. She did really well in school. She's gone off to college in the fall. But, you know, one of the things that I think has been very cool is that my niece and you can tell I adore her, but but I, I my niece, um, very active. In school, you know, she participated in athletics. She was on, like, Badger Girl State or whatever they call that. You know, I mean, she was very active in school. She, you know, participated in a lot of extracurricular activities and and things like that. But essentially, ever since she was 16, she's also worked. Um, She's worked, you know, during the summer, sometimes in a couple jobs. And I don't, you know, the the truth of the matter is I, I don't know that she would have had to work. If she decided that she didn't want to work, I, I think it might have been a situation where my brother and sister-in-law would have carried her. But that, that, that issue never came up. She she wanted to work, and she has always she has always done that. Um, I was talking to her. We were at dinner on on Sunday, and you know she she was telling me she used to work at some shoe store in one of the malls, and now she works um, at, at Mayfair Mall. And and she was telling me about how she just gotten promoted, and she was now what they call a key holder, which means that she can open and close the store. So, I mean, she, she's doing she's doing well. And I said, well, okay, this is your last summer before college. Are you going to keep working? Oh, well, yeah, I'm, I'm going to keep working, Uncle Jeff. Well, you know, how long? Well, I'm going to take as many hours as, the, as they'll give me. So, I mean, she's got this, this, this work ethic, and she didn't have to give up you know, doing things at school. But but she's always spent her summers working. Um, I mean, I'm not talking about necessarily working 60 hours a week or things like that, but she's always had a, a job. And I think I think it's been a really good thing for her because it, 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 it teaches you, 
you know, a bit of a work ethic that, that you got to, you know, you, you can't necessarily always sleep in. And that, that sometimes you have to pass on, you know, going out with your friends or going to the movies or whatever because you've got responsibilities. And your responsibility is, you know, you've got to work at the store from, you know, like like five until nine or whatever. And I think it's it's been good for her beyond just the fact that you're, you know, you're making some money so that you can, you know, go out and, you know, help underwrite the cost if you want to buy dresses or shoes or whatever, you know, you're, you're paying for yourself. And I've been... I've been very proud of her because she's been able to balance that that work, school, social life, extracurricular activities, and, and doing it all. And I bring this up because I was there was a story where is this out of uh, Bloomberg that I, I saw the other day about how American teenagers, as a general rule, are are, are not working. The, the number of teenagers in the workforce, and we're talking about, again, primarily part-time jobs. Okay, in July of last year, 43% of 16 to 19-year-olds were either working or looking for a job. Um, July is, the, if you, if you want to look at teenage employment, July is the, the time when, like, most kids are working because it's the middle of summer. So that that's it. Um, okay, so 43% in July of last year. That's according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics. In 1989, the labor force participation rate in July for teenagers hit 70%. In 2006, July of 2006, it was 53%. Last year, it was down to 43%. And this is at a time where employers are, in fact, hiring. Matter of fact, employers are desperate in many cases to try to get kids to come in and, and do these, these entry-level type of jobs. I was in a grocery store just yesterday. They have signs all over, hiring. You know, we, we, we need help. And, and this, is, I mean, this is the summer. They're, they're out there, and these are the type of jobs that people can go in. They can do. You can be a checker. You can be a bag guy. You can you know, go wrangle the carts and stuff. You, you can do those type of things. And the, the stores can't find people to do it. All right, 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I've had this conversation with a couple friends of mine who have, have children, and Sometimes I get that look like, well, Jeff, you just don't understand because, you know, you don't have kids yourself. Matter of fact, that's pretty much what one person I know told me. They said, well, you don't understand that the summer, first of all, kids are more stressed now than they were when we were kids. And and they need the summer to be able to decompress. Plus, you've got, all right, they've got the debate camp and you've got like the band camp and you've got the football practice that starts and you've got all these other things and we want to let kids be kids and there's just not enough time for them to have to work during the summer. And I look and I kind of roll my eyes and I think, you know, I understand that, but I think you're missing a lot if you don't work. And I think parents make a mistake by just saying, okay, stay at home, sit on your butt, um, I think there's a value to working during the summer, and I think people and parents who, regardless of need, don't make their kids or don't encourage their kids to work, I think those kids are missing out on something, and I think they might be in for a rude awakening later on. I think there is a value to work, and you miss it if you don't work during the summer. So, okay, 414-799-1620, that is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Am I, am I all wet on this? 
or or or, or is even if your kid, even if you are in a position where your kid doesn't necessarily have to work because, you know, maybe you've got enough money and you can keep the kid on an allowance, are you doing the right thing by not having them work? Because that's definitely the trend we discuss next. If you're on the line, hold on, please. It's 1045. Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Ten forty nine, Jeff Wagner, six twenty WTMJ. Chris in Elkhorn writes: We live in Elkhorn, and my son is fifteen. He has swim practice in the morning and afternoon, and is a bagger at a local grocery store. He had no choice but to have a job, but he is learning priceless life lessons. We would not have it any other way. Here's another text: You're right. I work for a local parks and recs department, and we have many unfilled positions. Even college kids want to work the minimum they can. And don't get me started on parents filling out their kids' applications, trying to accompany them on interviews, calling them in absent, etc. You know, back in the day, back when I was a kid, I mean, if you if you could, I mean, those were the type of jobs like working for the parks, like cutting grass and things like that. Those were the summer jobs that everybody. Um, you know, everybody would jump all all over. Those are the things that people wanted to do. 414-799-1620. Have a text. What, is the, what age is appropriate to start working? Well, I think certainly 16. I mean, I, I think certainly 16, particularly in the summers. Um, okay, let's talk to Kelly in Fond du Lac. Kelly, good morning. Good morning, Jeff. Um, I'm in the same predicament as you are with your niece. I've got a uh, daughter who's a junior at uh, Oak Creek High School. She'll be a senior next year. She plays on the basketball team. She, you know, she's active at school and Renaissance Club and some other things. And she always finds time for her friends. But uh, last year she held a, a yeah. uh, part-time job all summer long. Yeah. And then this year she's working at a, um, it's a uh, seniors, uh, senior living center, and right. she works in the kitchen. That's yeah. the only part of the facility she can work at. But she took the job, and the school's still in for Oak Creek. She works Saturdays and Sundays. Right. And I'm sure you know? she, Kelly, and I know she's given up stuff. I mean, there's there's chances to go off with her friends, and I'm sure that there, there's stuff she gives up. But you know what? She's learning life lessons, and she's also, I think, arguably learning the, the value of money and all sorts of things like that. And she does. You know, I, and I guarantee that at one time, when just before she got her first car, I would, Jeff, I would bet every dollar I make in a year that she probably still had the first dollar I ever gave her. <laughs> right. Yeah, no, thank, see, that, that I mean, there is... See, look, and I'm not saying that the kids can't have childhoods, and I'm not arguing that you, you know, you shouldn't be involved in extracurricular activities, and I'm not arguing that it's not important. I just think these numbers are kind of staggering when you look at the trends. You know that you know now it's down to like it's down from 70 percent when I was a kid to 43 percent of the the workforce, you know, teenagers working in July. Let's talk to Marianne in Milwaukee or in 620 WTMJ. Marianne, hi, Marianne. Marianne. Hi. Hi, Mary. How are you? Good. What do you think? Um, I raised two boys. They're in their 20s right now. Both of them had jobs by the time. Hello? Oops, we lost Mary Ann there. Let's talk to, um, oh. okay, our phones have just crashed. Are we still on the air? We are still on the air, but our phones have just crashed. Okay, let me take a very quick break. We'll be back. It's 1052. Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. It's 1055, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Marianne, I apologize. We're in the middle of a conversation. That was actually, when, when, that was a spectacular thing. All of a sudden, just our, our phone bank completely went went dead. And it looks looks like it's, I mean, the whole thing just, like, died. And so we lost all the calls. So I apologize there was there. Looks like we're 
bringing it back right now, but it was one of those technological gremlins. Um, but let's go to our text line. Marika in Milwaukee says, I didn't have to work, but my parents saw the value in it, and we got creative in the job choices. I worked two summers in Europe at a campsite that needed English speakers. The other two summers, I was a camp counselor in northern Minnesota. In each case, I was learning independence while earning money. There are lots of options out there. Love your show. Thank you. Um Let's see. Uh, Jeff in Wauwatosa, Jeff in Fox Point writes, kids can also have fun and make good friends in part-time jobs. I am still in contact with some of those with whom I worked at at a movie theater. It's a shame many are missing out now. Andrew writes, uh, Jeff, I started working at a movie theater the day after my 16th birthday and continued working while school was in. Some of my most memorable and fun memories came from the friends I met through my job and the experiences I gained from having a job. That's Andrew in Greenfield. Yeah, that's it. I mean, I, I've told this story before. I mean, my, my first job was when I was 16, and I worked at uh, the old Treasure Island store that used to be on Green Bay and Brown Deer Roads. It was like the, a discount version of J.C. Penney's, and I, I worked in the toy department over, like, the Christmas holidays and things like that. And it, and it, um, it, it was fun. I mean, it, you know, I, I, you, you'd get off of school, and I'd drive out there, and I'd work you know, 20, 25 hours a week, sometimes on weekends and all. And I remember just, I mean, there was a value in just learning that you had to be somewhere and that you had to, you know, interacting with you know, somebody other than your parents. And I remember, I still remember getting that first paycheck. And first of all, seeing all the taxes that came out of it. But it helped me appreciate money a lot more when you sit there and say, okay, I remember, oh, this is how much money I'm getting, and this is how many hours I had to work to earn the money. I I think it was just there was a value in that. And that's what I think you might want to miss out on. And and look, and I, I was still active, and I did sports, and I was on the debate team and all that type of stuff. And, and I still, you know, managed to get my homework done and things like that. So I think there there is a value to this. And I am not arguing that kids shouldn't be kids. And I'm not arguing that, you know, uh, there, there's not a value to just some downtime or, you know, you shouldn't go to band camp or debate camp or, or whatever. I'm not. I'm just saying that in some respects you, you can you can do it all. And if American teenagers, for whatever reasons, are being, you know, discouraged from doing that, maybe maybe what mom and dad need to do is just to back off a little bit on the overscheduling and say, okay, well, maybe, you know, we don't have to, you know, find activities to fill every moment. And plus, you know, look, when, when I was a kid, and, and even through college, I'll be the first to tell you, Colleen Boland, I did some crummy jobs. I mean, I, 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 did, I did some crummy jobs. And you know what those convinced me? Those convinced me that I wanted to stay in school. <laughs> and and I, wanted to, I wanted to do whatever I had to do because I knew I didn't want to spend the rest of my life doing some of those jobs. It's right? valuable experience. Yeah, right. It, it, it is kind of life experience. You learn to deal with different people. So um, there is that option that's out there. Okay, I think our phone lines are back coming up in just a couple. Our phone lines are, in fact, back, I'm told. That's very good coming up in just a couple minutes um well we've got a lot of stuff president trump in the news with another one of his tweets and a really interesting story about well i won't say it's romeo and juliet i certainly won't say that but um somebody's going to prison for something and we'll talk about it it's ten fifty nine. It's 1108, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Our phones are fixed. 
That was interesting. It's kind of an interesting thing. There's just this big flash and everything went dead. But I think we, we have we have solved the problem, so we can continue to take calls, which makes my job as a radio talk show host easier. Um, but we, we can get by without calls, but it's much more interesting when I get your input into the show, and I appreciate that. There's lots of ways to do it, um, including now our Accident Mortgage talk and text line. All right. A couple of different things we want to talk about in this section of the, the program. Um, I'm looking at the Wisconsin. This, let me give a PG-13 warning here. We're going to be talking about a sort of a semi-adult topic. So if, you've, uh, if, if you don't want to explain some of these concepts to the little pitchers with the big ears, okay, now might be a time to um, listen to music for a little bit and then, then come on back in a couple minutes. I'm looking at the Wisconsin statute on, on sexual assault of a child. And, and, and here's, here's what... It says, whoever has sexual contact with a person who's under the age of 13 is guilty of a Class B felony, which is a very serious thing. Whoever has sexual contact with a person who has not attained the age of 16 is guilty of a Class C felony. So, in other words, you know, sexual contact with somebody under 13, that's Class B. Somebody under 16 is Class C. Now, you might be listening to this and saying, Jeff, where is this conversation going? Because, you know, anybody who would have, you know, sex with a person who's under the age of 13 or a person who's under the age of 16 deserves to be thrown in prison and have the key thrown away. And and I understand that sentiment. But what if you have two 15-year-olds? What if you have two 15-year-olds who, while below what would be the legal limit for for consent— but but they're, they're, they're in love, all right? And you've got two freshmen or sophomores in high school who decide that they are in love and they are going to act out in a way that we all would agree they probably should not do, I think. But, but what, if, what if they do? Well, under the statute, if you've got two 15-year-olds, um, they, they are both guilty of, of this crime. They are both guilty of sex, second-degree sexual assault, the two 15-year-olds, because they had sex with each other, and neither one is able to consent. What about a situation where you have a fifteen, a 16-year-old boyfriend and the 15-year-old girlfriend, or vice versa? You know, what about, what about that? Is that really the type of, of conduct that we're looking at trying to get at? And the statute with regard to, you know, having sex with somebody who hasn't obtained the age of 13. Don't get me wrong. I I, I don't think that it is a good idea. I think it is bad. It is certainly not something that should be encouraged. It's not something that should be tolerated. But what if you have a case, I don't know, with a 14 and a 12-year-old, which is what brings – now, that's the Wisconsin statute, and it is similar to a lot of other laws. And it brings me to the story I want to talk about. This is out of – kind of out of Houston, Texas, there is a 14-year-old who is being tried for aggravated sexual assault of a child. So he's 14, and he's on trial for aggravated sexual assault of a a child. What did the 14-year-old do? The 14-year-old had consensual sex with his 12-year-old girlfriend. Now, I, I understand, as a, you know, as a, under the, they all have the old statutory rape laws. They don't use that term anymore. But that means that beyond below a certain age, you don't have the mental capacity to consent. So I understand there is the legal, you cannot consent. 
but there is also kind of the real world sort of thing. So here you have a 14-year-old boy, a 12-year-old girlfriend. Um, the teen, the boy, was in seventh grade at the time. He had sex with a sixth grade, his sixth grade girlfriend. The teen's mother says they were boyfriend and girlfriend. You know, that they had been dating. And I mean, you, you can make an argument that 12-year-old is too young to date and a 14-year-old is too young to date, but, but that's it. The mom says he had consensual sex with his little girlfriend. He loved her. Okay, well, well, mom is kind of delusional in this regard, too. I mean, I don't think you could fall in love with somebody at the age of 14. But she says they were, you know, boyfriend and and girlfriend. Um, his attorney says the idea that a 14-year-old who has had sex with a person just a little bit younger than him or her would be treated as the worst of the worst in our society and placed on the sex offender registry. And if the kid is convicted, he would be a registered sex offender. The attorney says that's... You know, r- ridiculous. Um, it just blows my mind. All right. 414-799-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage talk and text line. Now, I, I understand from the perspective, if you if you have a 13 or a 14 or a 15-year-old at home, the last thing in the world you want to hear is that that child, and they are children, have been sexually active. But if you've got the 15-year-old, okay, we'll use the example that perhaps comes up the most time, the the 15 or the 14-year-old girl, the high school freshman who's dating, maybe it's the high school sophomore who's, you know, 15 or 16, and they end up, you know, they end up having intercourse or something like that, and it's not... We're not talking about a situation where somebody gave somebody else drugs or got somebody else drunk or held somebody at knife point. If they're young, they're in love, and they decide that they're going to you know, do what they're going to do, it's a clearly a bad thing. But does the older kid, should the older kid be a sexual predator? Is this the type of thing that these statutes should be targeted at? This case out of Texas... The mom is saying, look, they, they shouldn't have done this, but this isn't this isn't sexual assault of a child. 414-799-1620, that is the Accurate Mortgage talk and text line. Does the mom here have, have a point? Is this what sexual assault is really about when you essentially have two kids um, who straddle straddle the different age limits? Who end up doing something that, again, we would all agree they probably should, they, they definitely should not be doing. But is this really sexual assault? And should they be treated? Should the older child, whether it's a male or a female, a boy or girl, should they be treated as a sexual predator? 414 799 1620 is the number we discuss next. If you're on the line, please hold on. It's 1115. Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. <laughs> It's 
It's 1118. This is Jeff Wagner. Glad to have you with us. 620 WTMJ. The WTMJ Classic Free Ride is out of our garage and it's ready to head into yours. You can register online to win the 1968 Valenti Oldsmobile 442 convertible by heading to WTMJ.com. It's sponsored by Prescient Financial Solutions with Northwestern Mutual. And don't forget to text the word RIDE to 414-799-1620 to check out a photo gallery of your next car. Hey, coming up in about 15 minutes, another industry that we once thought would never disappear is now on the verge of, I don't know, going the way of VHS tapes and 8-track tapes. Stick around. We'll talk about that. Right now we're discussing, it's a story that's out of Texas, but this could be happening in Wisconsin, and it has, as a matter of fact, happened in Wisconsin before. The, The way the law works is that if you have, for example, two high school kids, let's say a sophomore and a freshman. And depending on where the age falls, if those kids end up having a sexual relationship, which we would all agree they should not have, depending on exactly where the age happens. For example, if one is 16 and one is 15, the 16-year-old is guilty of a felony. As a matter of fact, the way Wisconsin law works is if you have both, if they're both 15-year-olds, and they have what I'm calling consensual sex with each other. They're guilty of, they're, they're both, both victims and the perpetrator, which has never made any sort of sense to me at all. Many states have what they call these Romeo and Juliet laws, which say that if, if you're dealing with minors, and there are, it depends on the state, if you're dealing with minors and there's a two, or in some case, three-year age difference, so the 17-year-old and the 14-year-old, um, that, that the laws don't apply. I'm, I'm not sure that that's necessarily the way to go. But at the same time, I have a very, very difficult time saying, okay, to the 16-year-old boy who is in the back seat with his 15-year-old girlfriend, and I'm not condoning either one of them, that, that, that's, that you're going to you know, lay a sexual predator rap on the 16-year-old boy, unless, again, if we're talking about you know, pulling out a knife or giving the girl drugs or something like that, but if it's really, we're young, we're in love, we're going to do this, I just don't, I have issues with this being a crime. Let's talk to uh, Tony in Port Washington. Tony, good morning. Hi. Hi, Tony. Um, the thing that I don't, you know, I agree with her. The whole whether they're in love thing or not is irrelevant. Right. Okay, that makes absolutely no difference. The bottom line is these are two kids. They're in school. They, they like each other. They start kissing. They pet, and things get move on as we know they do. I mean, that's no reason to label right. this, this, you know, this kid. But to me, the real question here is, when do you decide when a person is an adult or a child? Mm-hmm. Well, I you think, know, yeah. I mean, I, know, I think, I, mean, I, I guess I think it depends on the... We're 15-year-olds to adult prisons, you know, I mean... Yeah. See, I guess I think I it, it depends, I guess. I also think it depends on, on the circumstances. I mean, I mean, thanks for the call. For example, you know, if you have, and, and I admit, I, I wrestle with where this comes in. If you say to me, gee, Jeff, you know, you're saying that you don't think it should be a felony for the 16-year-old boy who's, you know, in the back seat with his 15-year-old girlfriend. 
because that's close. What about what about the 23-year-old guy who's in the back seat with the 15-year-old girl? Well, to me, that's not close. You know, when, once once you hit that magic age of 18, for example, um, I, I think I don't care if you're 19 and she's 16. I mean, once you hit that magic age of 18, I, I think at that point in time, you, you are an adult. And it's time to... Okay, if your girlfriend is 16 years old, you need to wait a couple of years. That or, or vice versa. I mean, or vice versa. I mean, I think to me, you know, once you definitely hit the age of majority, that becomes a clear-cut situation. That the things again, the two 15-year-olds, all right, I I I don't want to treat them as sexual predators absent again alcohol or weapons or something like that. But this is something that that plays out on on just a daily basis and it's playing out in Texas with a 14-year-old and a 12-year-old. Now, Again, it's kind of shocking to me that you have a 14-year-old having sex with a 12-year-old. That That's a bad thing. But the idea that the 14-year-old, who is below the age of consent himself, might be a sexual predator for the rest of his life because of that, that just doesn't strike me as being right either. All right, coming up in just a couple minutes, it's it's an industry which is on the verge of completely disappearing. Stick around. 1123, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. It's 1126, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. The Brewers' homestand continues against the Giants this evening here on 620 WTMJ. Bob Euchre and Jeff Levering hit the airwaves. Our coverage starts at 6.05, sponsored by Catholic Financial Life. Yeah, another tough loss for the Brewers. They're kind of coming back to reality, but uh, there's still two games over 500, tied for first place, but uh, need to get some more timely hitting and... I don't know. The relief pitching has not been very good. All right. Uh, Sue raises an interesting point. Uh, she sends me an email. I don't believe that this is a crime. They definitely should not be engaging in this sort of activity, but it wasn't forced. They didn't hurt anyone really but themselves. I feel if there is consent to sex, no matter what the age, it's not a crime. Well, I don't go that far because, again, I don't think a 25-year-old guy should be sniffing around a 15-year-old girl. Children under 18 should have some punishment, probably from their parents, but not go through life being a sexual predator. Um, there are real crimes that should be attended to. But here's the interesting point, especially interesting point that she makes. Why do doctors and Planned Parenthood, and I would add school nurses, give out prescriptions for birth control pills to 14-year-old girls without parental consent? Thanks for letting me vent. Yeah, I mean, why are we giving out condoms? See, th- this is this is one of the things that, that, again, makes my head explode. In the state of Wisconsin... It is against the law for people under 16 to have sex. It's against the law. It is a felony to do that. All right? So why in God's green earth can the 14-year-old student at MPS or the 13-year-old student at MPS, you know, go into the school nurse or whatever and get condoms? All right? What? What do you think that they are going to do with those? And interestingly enough, if, you know, they're, they're getting, for example, the condoms, and I understand the argument is, well, they're going to do this anyways, so, I mean, obviously, if you want to practice safe sex, well, okay, I, I get that argument, but if it's against the law to do that, all right, what, what, are, what are, for example, school nurses doing giving out condoms to 14-year-old boys or girls knowing that, what they're going to use them for, and knowing that when they do that, you know, they're going to be committing a crime. And if we're going to prosecute that, how how in the world do you explain? I'm trying to think, if, if I was a parent, 
and I found out that my 15-year-old child was sexually active, I would not be happy at all with that. But if I found out that my 15-year-old child was sexually active and had been using birth control measures given to them by the school nurse without my knowledge, well, on the one hand, I'd guess, okay, it's good that, again, they're practicing safe sex to the extent that they're safe sex. But at the same time, I'd be thinking, wait a second, you as the school official have essentially aided and abetted in the commission of a crime. What in the world are you doing? And that's, I guess, one of the interesting issues that you always have to wrestle around with this entire thing. There is going to be a, a press conference later this later this afternoon, and we're going to we're going to talk about this tomorrow. Right now, and we've had the governor on on a couple occasions over the last couple of weeks. There is the state budget. There, there is an impasse in the budget process. Normally, you get impasses because the Democrats don't agree with the Republicans. Right now, we have an impasse because the Republicans in the state Senate are aligned with the governor in his no-tax-increase budget. The Republicans in the state assembly are, in my opinion, following their leadership off a cliff and rejecting some of the no-tax-increase things that the governor wants, and they're just hell-bent on trying to do things which Republicans were not sent to Madison to do, namely raise taxes. And why the Assembly Republicans, the rank and file, guys like you, Jim Ott, guys like you, John Jagler, why you are preparing to allow your leadership to walk you over a cliff is absolutely, totally beyond me. But now the state Senate is saying, the Republican state Senate is saying, hey, you know, we don't think we're able to get anywhere with the Republicans in the Assembly. We're Maybe we're going to draft our own budget um, going along with what the governor is. Maybe we just can't compromise. Normally you have these disagreements and these rifts when Democrats have one house and Republicans have another. This is the Republicans in the Assembly that, whether it's pushing for higher gas taxes or whatever, have, at least in my opinion, some of the leadership collectively lost their minds. And we'll see what comes out of this press conference this afternoon. But maybe it's time for rank and file to say, you know, we're not going to be lemmings just walking over the cliff following our leadership. Just saying. We'll talk about that more tomorrow. Coming up in just a couple minutes, it's an industry that is going the way of VHS tapes. Do we need to step in? Stick around. It's 1131. This is Jeff Wagner. So, Colleen, have you ever been to a Waffle House? Yes. Yes, I have. In Georgia. Yeah. Well, oh, oh interesting. See, yeah. I love Waffle Houses. I mean, they're... They're like kind of like low rent diners. That you oh, find yeah. them on the, in the find them mostly in the south. But I mean, mm-hmm. they're they're they, they they have a certain a certain panache to them. I get nobody's ever used the word panache with regard to a Waffle House before. <laughs> they're they're they're, no. they're they're just kind of they're kind of I, I like Waffle Houses. They're, they they just they're, they they do breakfast. You know, they have, there's waffles and mm-hmm. you can get like steak and eggs and stuff like that. It's they can be charming, I, I suppose. Probably, yeah, a little, uh, I mean, okay, a little well, greasy. Right, right exactly. <laughs> but it's it, it's the type of thing if you want a soaker, you know, you've been drinking all night, and it's it's you know, and it's your, you know, you, you walk over to them. They're open twenty four hours. That that's it. Now the reason I bring this up, you went to Georgia Waffle House, mm-hmm. huh? All right, there, there's the story. Let's see. Man shows up to Waffle House naked. Visitors to a Georgia Waffle House. 
got more than they bargained for last week when a 36-year-old man exited his BMW. You don't see too many BMWs in the Waffle House parking no. lots. And tried to enter the restaurant fully naked. According to multiple le- media outlets, uh, somebody took a video of... Bashir Rashid as he paced outside the Standy Spring, Georgia Waffle House. The encounter was quite disturbing for those inside of the breakfast-themed <laughs> diner. <laughs> it kind of shocked me as a customer. It ruined my meal, <laughs> the guy says. Yeah, it's not something you uh, see every day. Eyewitnesses told the guy that upon exiting the car, well, we don't really have to say what he exactly did, but he ended up pressing himself against the glass door entrance to the Waffle oh, no. House. All right. Um, he was detained transported to a hospital where a complete evaluation was given. He was given a citation by police and then released. Now, most of the Waffle Houses I have been in, I, I don't know. I'm trying to imagine like at 2 in the morning, somebody walking in naked. It, it's the, the least of that guy's worries would have been, you know, the police showing up and giving him a citation. It's just <laughs> There's you know. a Waffle House in like every freeway exit down there, too. I mean, they're just everywhere. So... I, how many how many random incidents like this happen? Last summer, I, <laughs> last summer I went to um, I, I went to Canton for the the Brett Favre Hall of Fame uh, induction. Yeah, it was last summer, I think. And um, the, the hotel we were staying at, there was a Waffle House right across, right when we with, with like half block down, and um, I must have had two or three meals there. You know, it's just <laughs> I, I, I became a waffle a Waffle House regular. It's I mean, it is. Well, no, it's kind of crummy, but it was. I mean, but, it had a certain cachet to it. Again, it, there's that word. Um, no, I survived it, but I didn't see any naked guys. Okay, I just I get sidetracked. Coming up, um, it's the waffle houses are still around, but um, try to find find a phone booth now. You're not going to be able to do it. There's another industry that five years from now, some people say you're not going to be able to find these anymore. Do we need to do something? I'll tell you all about it. It's eleven thirty six. Jeff Wagner, six twenty WTMJ. 1138, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Uh, we'll, we will talk about this tomorrow after the Assembly uh, Republicans have their, their press conference. There, there's a divide in Madison between the Senate and the Assembly. The Assembly Republicans, of all people, want to raise taxes. Um, they don't want to go along with some of the things the governor wants. The, the state Senate is on board. I have a text that I think might kind of hit this. Robin Voss, he's the Speaker of the Assembly, wants to be governor, is flexing his muscles, and some members are siding with who they are betting will be the future governor. Well, I guess a lot can happen in five years, but because uh, Walker's going to run for re-election, a lot can happen in five years, and maybe Robin Voss is positioning himself that way. But I will tell you, a, a Republican who tries to increase taxes is not going to win a statewide election Period. And if you are Republican members of the assembly, um, don't don't let your leadership walk you over a cliff. That's my advice. We'll discuss that more tomorrow. Okay. Um, times change, tastes change. Think of a lot of stuff that was what's the word ubiquitous o- over the years. Remember blockbuster videos, and I understand there's still a couple like video stores that you can find here and there. But in, in general, remember blockbuster videos. Friday evenings, blockbuster videos were packed. First, it was with like VHS tapes. The new movies came out. People, you know, went there. You rented the blockbuster videos. You came. You took them. You watched them. Hopefully, you brought them back on time. Although blockbuster made a ton of money with people with the late fees and stuff. But that was it. You, I mean. There used to be a Blockbuster video at, at Bayshore Shopping Center, and you couldn't get into the parking lot on Friday when the new movies came out. It, you just couldn't. Okay, now n- nobody rents 
Nobody goes to a brick-and-mortar store, or almost nobody, goes to a brick-and-mortar store and, and rents CD or rents DVDs. I mean, there's no such thing as you know, VHS tapes anymore. They've, just, they, they've been bypassed by on-demand technology and things like that. It's just kind of the nature of the things. For the longest time, if you traveled and you wanted to call home, you would find one of these things called a phone booth. And you would have, um, you'd either put money into the pay phone or you'd have a, a calling card and you'd punch in this number and, and you'd make your calls. But you'd, you know, airports, you know, there, there'd be rows and rows and rows of these different pay phones and people, you know, business folks or whatever, you know, you, as soon as you got off the plane, if you're waiting for your next plane, you'd be making these calls. You'd check into the office, you'd call home, all those different things. Well, um, pay phones are gone. Phone booths are, are, are gone. And it's just they've been supplanted by different technology. In this case, everybody has cell phones nowadays, so you don't need pay phones. One of the the real changes in business models that have happened over the last few years has been the, the rise of the, these ride-sharing services like Uber and Lyft. Um, when I travel, I try, if at all possible, to avoid renting a car. Sometimes, sometimes you just you. you you can't. You just can't avoid it. You know, I um, occasionally a friend of mine will invite me out to his place in in Arizona to play golf, and his place is a long way away from the airport, and it, it's just I, you almost need to rent a car. So I mean, I'll do that. But when I go to Las Vegas, for example, I I, I don't take I don't rent a car. Um, if I go to Chicago, I I don't. I, I wouldn't rent a car. I like to. I'll take. I don't even like to drive down there. I'll take the train down there and then take cabs around. Um, so I, you know, I, I've always been, especially when you go to these places that are good cab cities. I use the cabs. I used used to use the cabs in Vegas. Use the cabs in Chicago. The last time I was in Las Vegas with my brother, we there were a couple of times when we you know had to. We, we needed to go from the hotel we were in to someplace, and it was too far to walk. And I said, well, should we go get in the cab line? And he said, well, no. He said, I'm, I'm just going to call Uber. I've got the app. And so I said, oh, that's interesting. So instead of waiting in a cab line at the hotel, he just dials this thing up. We walk to this separate entrance in the hotel that they've got, like, Uber pickups, and th- th- there's a car waiting for us. We, we went to this dinner and then uh, after the dinner, he just, again, my brother checks out the app, and there's th- this Uber driver that's there in, in two or three minutes. I mean, there wasn't calling a cab, not trying to flag down a cab. We, we took the Uber, and it was, it was just fine. Now, I bring this up because Chicago, together with New York, have arguably, and Vegas, I'd say, been probably the three biggest cab towns around. Big story in USA Today about how operators of the cab companies, the taxi fleets in Chicago, are are saying that they are on the verge of becoming extinct, virtual dinosaurs, because of these ride-sharing services like Uber and Lyft. Um, Here's the deal. In March, 42% of Chicago's taxi fleet was not operating. 42%. Cabbies have seen their revenue slide by nearly 40% over the last three years as riders are increasingly ditching cabs and using these ride-hailing apps. Um, More than 2,900 of Chicago's nearly 7,000 licensed taxis were inactive in March of this year, meaning they had not picked up a fare in the month. 
Um, so, you know, what's happening is that there, there's not enough demand for it. So, you know, the cab companies aren't putting cabs out there. The cab drivers aren't driving. It's not that people aren't using the services. They're just not calling cabs. 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Five years from now, will there still be cabs as we know them? Or will the Uber and the Lyfts and the other ride-sharing companies have essentially driven cabs out of business? Are cabs on the virtue of going the way of the you know, twice-daily printed newspaper and the VHS tapes and 8-track tapes and pay phones? 414-799-1620 is the number. I have my theory. I want to hear yours. I'll share mine. We'll hear yours as well. It's 1145. If you're on the line, please hold on. This is Jeff Wagner. Eleven forty nine, Jeff Wagner, six twenty, WTMJ. Christina in Hartford. Christina, good morning. Hi. Are cabs going to go the way of the dinosaur? I think they will. Um, cabs have this stigma to them, where when you get in them, you better sit down and shut up, and you're going to pay big when you get out. And I recently took a trip to Chicago with my three daughters, and we absolutely loved Uber. They're so nice. They talk to you. Mm-hmm. They act like they are doing you a you, you know like. They're right. happy to serve you, and they'll charge your phone, give you bottled water. It is amazing. Was this the first time you had used Uber? Yes, when okay. we went to Chicago. And the thing that I like is you know before you get in how much you're going to pay, which right. I really like. Right. No, it, it was it was easy. And I'll tell you, like in, in Las Vegas, we had I'd gone out to dinner with my brother. It was a it, it was it was an off the strip kind of place. And what what I guess I kind of liked is we're done with the dinner. You know, he he punches this thing in, and literally three minutes later, there, there's somebody there. It wasn't trying to flag down a cab. It wasn't waiting. Um, exactly. I was. It had an appeal. No thanks. And you you had the certainty. No, I mean you you did in fact have the certainty of this, and I think that's part of the appeal. I think also. This might again be a generational type of thing. I mean, there's some people who are going to be reluctant, I think, to, to you know, use the app and stuff like that. But um, I admit it's kind of easy. Uh, let's talk to Danny in Milwaukee. Danny, you're in six twenty WTMJ. Good morning. Hey Jeff, how you doing? Good. Okay, is, it, are, is Uber going to kill the cabs? Um, yes and no. Um, I think your five year plan might be a little bit too quick. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm. I'm one of the old-fashioned people that, you know, I'm used to a cab. Right. But I like Uber and the idea that, you know, okay, you can pick the size car that you need and everything else. And then, like you just said, they're there in two minutes, not yep. 45. Yep. Not to mention, yep. riding in a cab can be like an Indiana Jones adventure. <laughs> you know, where <laughs> does the guy speak English or Swahili? And then does the car smell like a Grateful right. Dead concert? <laughs> but, <laughs> thanks. You know, thanks. You know, is bleach. You know, I don't know. <laughs> it, you but, know, it's, it's it's funny. I was just... Next week, I was I was watching some program last night, and it was like these people were getting in the back seat of the cab, and the woman says, "Well, it smells like somebody did this in the back of the cab," and the cab driver says, "It's because somebody did do that in the back of the cab." Oh, now that that's that's not fair, and I mean, you you can get the bad Uber experience as well. I, I think you know, big picture though is the convenience and the certainty of price. I, I think that's th- th- it is a challenged industry, and I am not surprised. That you know the, these numbers are what these numbers are. Now I'm not predicting that all cabs are going to be gone in five years. Just like I'm not predicting that all landline phones are going to be gone in five years. But the truth is, 
I, I think there's going to be a lot fewer of them. I, I, I do. And I think the economics, I mean, well, you're seeing this play out in Chicago when you have like what, you know, 30 some, 40 percent, whatever, the 42 percent of the fleet is, is, is not operating anymore. Why is that? Well, it's because right now the cab companies have not figured out how to compete with, um, you know, Uber. Let's talk to Bob in Wauwatosa. Bob, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Hi, Jeff. Hi, Bob. I use cabs primarily from the east side of Milwaukee up to my house in Wauwatosa, west right. side, and from downtown Chicago out to O'Hare. And I have been taken on some cab rides where literally within Milwaukee, a 200% price difference mm-hmm. from downtown to my house. Right. And in O'Hare, even greater. Right. You don't know what you're going to get, and it really bothers me when you get in because their yeah. calculations – if not fraudulent, are wildly inaccurate. Mm-hmm. Right. Whereas with Uber, it's a defined thing. You know how much you're paying when when you sign up. Exactly. Yeah. No. I think that's a. I think that. I mean, thanks. I think that's definitely one of the challenges that, that's out there. And I think, look, I, I think cabs can survive. But I think they need to figure out how to compete. You know, my guess, by the way, is there's a lot of cab drivers, people who didn't own their own cabs, who are now are are now driving for Uber. That 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 is my guess. That a lot of that stuff is is going on. And I understand you talk to the cab drivers, and they'll tell you that they think there's unfair competition. That, that Uber has you know unfair advantages and things like that. But the reality is, this is the wave of the future. And if you're going to, if there's still going to be that traditional cab. Not five years from now, but ten years from now, um, I think the cab industry has to figure out how to compete, and I'm not sure they figured out what what that way of competing is going to be.